Great to see all you guys who didn't travel out of town this weekend. I know we usually have lots of travelers on Labor Day weekend. Having Ray come up and do an announcement, it's kind of like having the knuckle breaker for the mafia come do announcements, isn't it? <laughs> you will be at prayer on Friday. You know, it's something about Ray. He shows up. <laughs> we let Ray come up and do the ugly work, and we just are nice. We hope all you men can join us Friday. <laughs> uh, speaking of joining us, we do have another new baby visiting, well, not visiting, permanently located here with us. Uh, Kirsten and uh, Ben Watson had a little girl, Eden Maria. Is she in the auditorium with us? She's sleeping. Ah. Uh. Well, congratulations on you guys adding one more to your brood. All right. Well, this morning we're going to be at Exodus chapter 15. So if you want to begin to turn there with me, and we're going to answer the question, when do we get to sing? Because they're going to be singing in this passage this morning. But, you know, singing, it, it's an interesting topic for us to venture into here because music is a, is a big part of our lives, isn't it? I mean, you've got the earphone thing happening all over the place these days. Folks are inundating their lives with music. And that's kind of always been the case. We just, we're just people who love music. So let me do a little trivia here with you, and I'm going to warn you that you will not get this right. Let me just warn you. You will not get this right. Here's the question. Most played song in music history. The most played, White Christmas is a great guess. Most played song in music history. <laughs> I was going to give you all a multiple choice and see if you could kind of guess here. But according to Time Magazine here, right, here's the answer. Various sources cite the Righteous Brothers... You've lost that love and feeling from 1964. Is having more than 8 million plays on radio and TV. And the Beatles yesterday from 1965 with at least 7 million in the U.S. alone and many more in the rest of the world. Irving Berlin's White Christmas, introduced by Bing Crosby in 1942, has inundated the airwaves ever since, but only for a few weeks each year. There's little debate that Patty and Mildred Hill's Happy Birthday to You, originally Good Morning to You, has been performed more than any other song, but not in public. We did the math on the songs that played nearly 50 million times over the last 50 years. Nobody famous sang this tune. It was never a hit single and got almost no play on Top 40 radio. There's even a dispute over the exact title, yet it's a small world. Also known as a small, small world, it's a small world after all, is very likely the most played song in music history nearly 50 million times. And it was first aired 50 years ago this month. Anybody in here was going to guess it's a small world? Nobody? Hey, right now you're just mad because you can't already, you can't get that song out of your head. See, already. <laughs> You're thinking, did you have to do that to us, Keith? I'm going to be singing that song all day long today. <laughs> uh, well, if I had to ask you the oldest song in the world, you might be able to guess at this one. But actually, I'm not sure I agree with the archaeologists. The oldest song is claimed to be 3,400-year-old Sumerian hymn. And it was discovered in the ancient Syrian city of Ugarit. 
The reason why I debate it is because quite obviously the song we're going to read today is a little bit older than 3,400 years old. And debatably, this is the first song recorded in Scripture. And there are some other pieces of what could have been songs in the book of Genesis. But this is the first recording ceremony here of a song. And what's interesting about this song is because up until this moment, you have no idea what that Sumerian hymn was because you've never heard it. And more than likely, you will never hear it. But the song we're going to read today, you have heard, and you will hear again. As a matter of fact, you will hear it at the end of the age. I'm not sure it might even be sung somewhere into eternity. right? In, in Revelation chapter 15, we read this. This is how significant this song is. <clears throat> it says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses on that day. And we're going to see today, I'm going to pick up a little bit of the theme of that in just a moment. What, what is it about this song that makes it in God's economy so popular? It's going to be referenced numerous times in Scripture, and it's going to be sung not just at this moment, right, where we're tracking through the story of the people in the book of Exodus. They've, they've managed to escape Egypt, which... You know, never thought that would ever happen. They've wandered off into the wilderness. They have found themselves in a dilemma. Their back is against the Red Sea, mountains on both sides. A pressing army from the Egyptians has come to destroy them in anger. And God does a miraculous deliverance for them yet again and rescues them out of that predicament. And this song is birthed out of that experience in their lives, right? Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, it's obvious then from the plentiful allusions to this song in Holy Scripture that it is full of deep spiritual significance. It teaches us not only to praise God concerning the literal overthrow of Egypt, but to praise him concerning his overthrow of all the powers of evil and the final deliverance of all the chosen. It was God's intent from the day of Moses downward, even to the hour when flames of fire shall lick up the works of men and the heavens themselves shall be dissolved with fervent heat, that this shall be the song of the chosen people everywhere. Sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. That's what this song is going to feature. And that little phrase, I think, resonates with the song that God is, is most wanting to be most played in all the universe. Sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Right Now, let me just chase a little rabbit here for just a moment. Because I know music is uh, a major deal in life. Music, we identify with music for a variety of, of reasons. All of us have a particular taste. We have styles that we like. Music plays a part. Um, how many of you guys, if, you, if you're in a car driving, there's music playing? Let me see how many hands. 
How many guys are not listening to music? You're listening to the news or just listening to the wind blow on the car? All right, so most of us, do, we, just, we forget a moment, we're, we're getting music going on in our lives. There's music playing in the background of your home. You are cutting the grass and you've got stuff in your ears and you're, you're listening to music. Um, if you're a younger generation, you've somehow got multitasking genes that the rest of us didn't get and you actually do homework while listening to music. Um, that didn't work for me very well, but apparently it works for you guys. So writing music that reflects and that's meaningful and that has social content to it. You know, listen, that didn't just begin in the 60s, right? I mean, the 60s was a social commentary being done through rock and roll. But that's not, uh, that's not just from the 60s, right? This song here is a song out of a social moment. There's something happening that everybody who sings the song identifies with. We're all in this thing. We're all experiencing this thing. And this song gives birth to something they can all sing. Now, I don't know what you like to sing, right? I don't know what songs you identify with, but, that, but that's a little telling about you, actually. You might want to stop and think for a moment. What kinds of songs do you deeply identify with? Right? And if you, if you kind of categorize, you, you, got, you got love songs, you know, you've lost that loving feeling. It's a love song, right? It's, just, it's about love. It's about relationships. A lot, of, a lot of songs about that. There's social issue songs, you know. Uh, you know, the Coca-Cola commercial was one of the most popular songs in our lives, right? When I'd like to teach the world to sing, you know, and everybody swayed back and forth. Or the world hunger song that the... Uh, cool hippie people did uh, a number of years ago. Uh, life struggle songs. I mean, isn't that what yesterday is? You know, all my troubles seem so far away. And, you know, life is just a struggle. It's just hard. Yeah, man, that's, that's what I identify with. Sentimental songs. You know, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, right? That's a sentimental song. Right, so whatever category, it'd be interesting for you to tell, and you guys who are doing small groups this, this week will have a fun time interacting with your background and what songs you used to listen to, what bands you identify with, and what what's on your playlist now. But, but Charles Spurgeon says this about this song that we're about to read. He says, it is evident that this patriotic song was interwoven with the life of Israel and that when good and gracious men would express themselves in praise at their very best, they fell back upon this song of Moses. And they sang unto the Lord who had triumphed gloriously. So full of significance then as this song is, there's something for us to learn from it. And I thought we'd be really quick in this song. And once I got into it, it was going to be anything but quick. If I can do this in two weeks, we'll be doing well. So let's just read the song here and look at what the lyric is for this song that Moses gives us. Verse 1. So then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen offers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like, the, like a stone. Your hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. 
In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you? O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made of your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Lord, thank you for, again, your word is revealing. It reveals things that we may overlook way too easily. God, we're looking for a song to sing. Lord, we are a people who like to sing about something. We're looking for something that all of us identify with. We're looking for something that resonates in how life feels. And Lord, you have given us a song. It is a song of your triumph. It is a song of your great power operating on our behalf gloriously. So Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have placed here for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Mr. A.W. Pink says this about this moment. He says, their sighing gives way to singing, their groans to praising. They are occupied no longer with themselves, but with the Lord. And what had produced this startling change? Two things. The blood of the Lamb and the power of the Lord. Right? Where we are in history here, we've just had the Passover meal was celebrated, right? That's their exit. This is God's unique favor upon this people that, that his judgment will not fall on them because the blood has covered their lives. And so they've got this revelation that we uniquely are under the blood. And then they follow God out and they experience and witness the power of God and they burst into song. Now listen, I just you know, I was reading... Mr. Pink's thought there, and, I, and I've had this experience, and I hope you have as well, that sometimes, I mean, this meeting, and, you know, as Jason was mentioning, this, this is holy ground. This is, this is meeting with God in a unique way that our lives need. I need moments when I clear out the noise and I establish a focus, and, and the way he says it's very helpful. He They were occupied no longer with themselves. Listen, um, 
you know, th- this meeting that we have, you know, it absorbs quite a bit of my week, quite a bit of my time of prayer and preparation and considering what God wants to do when we're together. So I walk into this meeting having done a lot of pre-work, if you will, before I even get here. And, and yet sometimes I have to fight for focus with God. So I'm, I'm sure that if you're not doing the homework that I'm doing on the way into this meeting and you walk into this meeting, you, you, you can skid your way into something God's doing with all kinds of noise taking place in, your back, in the back of your mind, right? And yet meeting God here, it facilitates and it needs us to be occupied no longer with ourselves, and there are many moments when I have, I have come into this meeting and, and we are singing and all the threatening noise of life that's been a part of my week or a part of just what's going on or all the fears and concerns that just kind of linger in the back of my heart like fungus, they're there and then I, then I begin to sing things about God. And quite often, I am, I am reduced to tears in that moment. Because in that moment, I, you know, it's like God is dislodging me from me. Like God is reminding me and making real once again who he is and what he has done. You, know, you start singing, and it's kind of like, man, I should have been singing yesterday. <laughs> I should have been singing earlier in the week. I should have been paying attention. I should have gotten my mind off of me and put it on him. And interesting, you know, singing occupies an ability for us to do that. It says in verse 1, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang. Then they sang. Well, well, when did they sing? Well, according to the verses right before it, verse 30, it says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Right, it's one thing to know that your enemies are, are somewhere besides in the room with you. Because you can always imagine that they can come into the room at any moment. It's another thing to know your enemies are dead. Right? So that's the experience they're having right now. Verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed. The people feared the Lord and they believed. Listen, there's, there's something about singing, really singing. Now, I'm not talking about just being in the audience, just sort of mouthing every third word. And, you know, and listen, and, you know, we do have hidden cameras. I do know who you are. <laughs> uh, right? I mean, some of us come into this meeting, and it's, it's sort of like this mundane interaction with something that looks like third grade Pledge of Allegiance. You know, you're just kind of going through the motions. You're standing up and then to the sit down. But there's something about really singing. You know, when you're really singing, that involves really believing, right? This is the spontaneous eruption of song because they really believed something. They saw the power of God. They believed something in this moment and song invaded their hearts, and they sang out because of it. Matthew Henry says, observe, they expressed their joy in God and thankfulness to him by singing. 
It is almost natural to us thus to give vent to our joy and the exultations of our spirit. Singing is as much the language of holy joy as praying is of holy desire. Now, I don't chase this too far because maybe this is a message by itself. But there's something in the Christian life installed for us called singing. Right? I mean, I don't know how you are. When you download stuff onto your computer, you know, you ever just watch it? You ever sit there and just watch it? It tells you it's downloading this now, downloading this, and the little bar starts moving. Right? If you downloaded the Christian life at some point, you get saved and you download and you watch this thing, there's going to be a little blurb and a little bar that comes up, and it's going to be about singing. Now, and I've told you this story before. When I got saved, like, I didn't notice that was downloading in my life, and, you know, I was... You know, I was, I was a teenager getting saved, and I was a guy. Back then, there was no gender confusion, by the way. And guys don't sing. Not, not cool guys. Athletic cool guys don't sing. And so when that kind of got downloaded, that was a problem for me. That thrust me into a real dilemma because I'd go into meetings, and these people were singing like they actually meant it. And I'm kind of like, <laughs> singing's for girls. <laughs> Uh, apparently, I was mistaken and God was right. Singing is for people. And God downloaded that in your life. So can I just, just you know, poke at this subtly for you because I'm not going to make the whole message about this. If you don't sing well, there, there's going to be something about your relating to God that isn't going right. It's about the best way I can put it. Because God installed singing. Singing's unique. Singing is different than just repeating something. Singing is different than reading, right? The moment you sing, it's like it, it shifts over to another part of your brain. It reaches down with another arm and grabs your heart and goes, ding, 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 ding. Right? And so you, your heart is involved and your thoughts are involved and, and meditation is involved. It's like God invented this thing called singing, saying, you know what? You're going to need to sing. There's just some stuff for you to experience about me, for you to meditate and consider about me, that the only way for you to really encounter it is for you to sing. So if you're a person who comes in this meeting and you don't sing, that's not a good thing. That's a problem. And you, you need to fix that. And I know that because I had to fix it in my own life. Here's an interesting thought. Klaus Wasterman reminds us that Thanksgiving is a relatively modern development. He suggests that where a worshiper in the psalm says, I will praise the Lord, he does not mean I will be thankful to God, but I will respond to him for what he has done for me. This is celebration that is present here. The praising of God, meaning that responsive action is called for. I will respond to him. All right, God has done something here. God has rescued them. There's been this powerful deliverance. God has exercised power over their enemies and put them in a secure place. How do you respond to that? Well, one of the responses in the Bible is singing. It's a response, and God calls for us to respond, right? Um, there is spontaneous stuff that happens that, that, that does this kind of moment to us, right? Um, 2009. Super Bowl, right? You are watching the Saints pull away, and Tracy Porter intercepts uh, Mr. Peyton Manning's pass, right? And, and, and it, f it felt a little bit like 
done deal. You got this one, right? I mean, this is, this is going to be a nail in the coffin, right? There's something, and, and what happens in that moment? Whether you are in the Superdome, you know, I was in the living room of my own home, and it didn't matter. I mean, spontaneous song erupted, right? There was, there was the who dat chant going off. You know, you're up off the sofa. You're high-fiving. There's a song to be sung. It's happening in this moment because something, something happened in that moment, right? We could, we could smell triumph, right? And song came out. And you may, not, you may not be much of a singer, Right, and you probably didn't exactly take a cheerleading class when you were in high school, but you know you were high off the ground. Everything but pom poms were in your hands, and you were going nuts. Right? Well, that that's what's happening here. But you know that that lets us in on something. See, you and I are created to find something like that to celebrate. This is this is the reason why. You know, sports enthusiasm, you know, radical expressions, they exist in us because we, we were created for God. We were created to see the triumph of God. And that, that's what these guys see here. When they, when they see God overthrow their foe, the guy who's been running the score up on them all these years, and God turns, and this is, the, this is the final score now. There are dead bodies washing up on the shore. It's over. And God says, those Egyptians, you will see them no more. And they erupt in song in that moment and celebration, right? That's, that's what God has in mind. Look in verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him, right? At some point, God, for everybody in this room, at some point, God's got to go personal in your life. Every human being, I almost even want to say the atheist who attempts to deny this, every human being has something in his heart saying, there is a God. Whatever, however your concept of this God exists, there's a power out there, there's a higher power, there's an origin, there's a creator, there's a cause that made all this stuff happen. But at some point in your life, that's not enough. Right? And, 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 and be very careful because spirituality is in vogue for a lot of people. It's out of vogue for some these days, more so than it used to be, but it's in vogue for a lot of people. And it's, it's vague it's nonspecific. It's this idea that there's a higher power, power out there, that there's spirituality to be tapped into. It's kind of got that feely kind of stuff going on inside of you. But if you bump into somebody who's got an acknowledgement that they believe that there's a God, can I just tell you, that's not enough. Right? That's not what this song is celebrating. Right? This song goes personal with God. Right? I put the, the Hebrew words in there so you can just see it. This is what's being said. Yah is my strength. Yahweh, the personal God, he, that personal God is my strength. Not, not the force in Star Wars, not some cosmic reality or idea, not some transcendent ability of the mind that's in the Far East. Yahweh is my strength. This is my, two words get used here. This is my El, my father's Elohim. 
Those are common words in the language of the day for God and God-like beings. So it's interesting, among all the pantheon of gods, and, and, and this is not even being said here by the people that are singing, because theologically, I don't think they could say this yet. At some point in the New Testament, we get to read clarity on all the other, quote, gods out there, they're really not gods at all. They're either, if, they're, if they exist, which many of them don't even exist, they're just hailed as gods, but they don't even exist. They're not really gods. If they do exist as spirit beings, they're devils. They're demonic beings that people are engaging in life. So that's the landscape. The Apostle Paul gets really clear on that. I don't think these guys at this point have clued in. I think for them, there are many gods. Right? We just came out of Egypt. You know, God went 10 and 0 against the other gods. But they were, they were gods that God was you know, beating down as they departed Egypt. So for them, it was among all the choices that there could be gods out there, Yahweh is my God. He is above them all. He is my strength. Now listen, you and I live with other options available to us, don't we? You, you don't have to worship God, depend upon God, trust God. Right? You could be here this morning with an acknowledgement of the existence of God, but you're here this morning drawing your peace and your comfort from how much money is in your bank account. And you'd know how much that would change when the stock market changes or when suddenly you lose that money and all of a sudden your heart turns upside down. Your heart's kind of pronouncing to you, I don't know who your God is, but my God just tanked. <laughs> and your stomach is miserable in that moment because you're losing your hope. And you just discovered where your hope really was. This is these guys saying, you know, there's a bunch of choices for us to trust in. Yahweh is my strength. I put my trust in him. He goes personal in this moment. And let me say this also about going personal because, you know, by God's grace, we are blessed. And this is a blessing. Sometimes it's not spoken of as a blessing. For us to have generations of believers in this room, right? Generations who have come from the same family lineage. We have we have grandparents and the next generation and the next generation under that in this room here, a lot of them. And what, what a blessing that is, that God's revelation came to some family member at some point, and then they transferred it to the next generation, and then that generation is transferring it to the next generation. That, that, what a great joy that is, and we are grateful for that. But, but recognize there is a built-in danger in that. Not that it shouldn't be happening. It's supposed to happen. We want it to happen. We're going to keep on seeking for it to happen. But I, I came into Christianity from outside of it. I wasn't raised with a knowledge of Scripture, with an understanding of conversion, with my need to come into relationship with God and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It was all foreign to me. I was, I was raised with religion. I was raised with a God who existed, not heard stories about Jesus Christ, and it was all about me doing the best I could. So coming to know Christ was, was new for me. So I'm generation one in my family. Now, if you're generation two or you're generation three, there, there's a familiarity there that comes into your life at an early age that can trick you into making you think you've got something that you don't have. 
Right? At some point, this song, and I love songs, so if you're a young person and you're not a singer, that might be your first tip, that I might, I might not own what I think I own. Because I promise you, you sing about something. There's something in your life that you got some singing going on about. But this idea that Yahweh is my God, he is mine, that ownership of God, oh, yeah, he's my father's God as well but he's my God, right? That's what this says. So there's an identification that this is Yahweh of the Old Testament. This is Yahweh, my father's God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is that specific God, but he's my God. And at some point, you, young people, and I say this especially to teenagers, but I also say this to young adults, because, you know, don't take this wrong, young adults, but, you know, you're lingering in things longer than two generations above you did. Two generations ago, people who were 25, 28, they were doing life very differently than the way you're doing it. And so there's a lingering there that you're, you're sort of waiting to fully embrace ownership of a lot of things. And it might be that you're that way with God. So it's a good question for you to ask. Is, is this God your God or is he your parents' God? Does he belong more to them and you kind of ride the momentum of them? Right? If your parents decide, I ain't never going to church again ever, I'm done with all that. What would that do to you? This be your God? Like, I don't care what you're doing, but I know who I'm going to serve. and I know who I'm living my life for. Or would that be foreign to you? You're kind of riding on the coattails of another. It's interesting, Barnabas Piper is John Piper's youngest son. wrote a book last year called The Pastor's Kid and identified some things about growing up as a pastor's kid and what that experience was like. I think it applies to really second-generation Christians in a large way. He says, there's a huge difference between knowledge of biblical facts, listen, and confidence in biblical reality. If you didn't read anything else, that's worth coming today for, to be aware that you can know biblical facts, right? I don't think anybody in here is going... Yeah, they, they crossed the Red Sea. It opened up. It was like a scientific freak show, and they went through on dry land. Yeah, I've heard that story. There's a big difference between being aware of that story and confident in biblical realities that you own that story. That story is a commentary that informs you and how you live. The biblical realities of grace forgiveness and identity in Christ can seem unreal and unattainable to a, a preacher's kid. No matter how steeped in the Bible we have been since we could walk and talk. And in fact, being so steeped in all things biblical often makes those realities harder to believe because they seem mundane, even though they're the basis for all good things. Often, we do not even know what we believe, even if we can spout off every biblical reference about, what, about that which we know we should believe. It's, it's an interesting dilemma to have information in us. You grow up around words like grace, and they become mundane words. They become words that don't bring tears to your eyes because you're just familiar with the word. 
but the reality of the concept of a God who has set his affection and his redeeming work on your life when you did not deserve it, when you were an enemy of his, when you were self-absorbed in your own navel and building your own kingdom, and he ran you down and insisted that you come to know the work he did on your behalf and flooded your heart and opened your heart to him and you stand here today because of that. That's what grace is. It's a concept that's much more real than just a word that I hear, by the grace of God. By the grace of God. By the grace of God. We just throw these words around. And they can be empty words without meaning and content in them. I mean, let me just tell you, this is a, this is a youth ministry moment um, Here's a reality. Now, I say this to us as a community of people who have young people in our midst that I think we need to learn. Most churches have needed to learn how to appropriately deal with this segment of who we are. There is an appropriate expectation for holiness that sits among God's people. It's appropriate for that to exist. You know, how, how you carry it, how you communicate it how obnoxious you are about it or, or how you never, it never even comes up in conversation, right? Somewhere in there, you know, you're in one of those areas. You, you may live so much where you're never concerned about holiness issues. You never bring that up. Your life isn't concerned with it and you're not concerned with it but for anybody else. And then on the other end of the extreme, there are people who are overly concerned with every I being dotted and every T being crossed and every dress being a certain length and every hairstyle and every car that you own and every TV that you watch and, and they're watching you, right? So somewhere in here, you're in between those extremes. It's appropriate for us to be concerned about holiness issues. Young people come into this moment in their teenage years where they are about to venture into making their own decisions. That's about to be what they're going to do. If I put a bow and arrow in your hand, you've never held a bow and arrow, but you all, anybody here not know what a bow and arrow is? But here, not seen one shot. Um, all right, we do this kind of stuff at the men's retreat. We shoot bow and arrows. Sometimes we shoot them at people. Just got to warn you if you come uh, to a men's retreat. It's amazing to see how bad of a shot people are. Because you're thinking, yeah, I got this. I'm a guy, right? I'm athletic. I hunt. You know, you put a bow and arrow in somebody's hand, and it's like, I'd be willing to wager you can't even hit that wall back there. <laughs> you mean anywhere on the wall? Anywhere on the wall. Go ahead. <laughs> it's bad. This is, this is a teenager being handed life. Here, dude, your turn to make decisions. Aim careful. <laughs> and they spend the next few years of their life missing everything, shooting people, shooting themselves in the leg, just it's all over the place. Be careful you don't marry together this expectation for holiness with people who are just learning to shoot the bow and arrow for the first time. And then we become, careful, we become this obnoxious setting that teenagers want to do anything but be here in. Because there's this expectation that they're going to shoot the bow and arrow the way the 30-year-old shoots the bow and arrow who got saved a long time ago and has learned how to be an adult and they're pulling it off now, right? And they don't have those kinds of issues going on in their life anymore. Well, thank God they don't. And they've got about 
10, 15 years of God's dealing in their life and some things that were shallow ideas and shallow convictions and untested in their life have gotten tested over time. And they're not just venturing out of Egypt for the first time. Because, by the way, I don't want to kill the glory of these, these chapters, but you, know, you, you, don't, you don't get to the close of one chapter without another problem. I mean, they're going to celebrate here. They're going to sing. They're going to sound like these are the ultimate followers of God. And then they're going to be a problem again in just a few words. Right? So this is maybe kind of teenagers venturing out. And you and I need to figure out how do we be a covenant community that has those kinds of people in it we don't run them off while they shoot wildly their arrows because for the first time in their life, they really are making their own decisions, and they're not very good at it. And they make bad ones that hurt people and mess their own lives up, and we're going to continue to relate to them. So that's just a, a, a thought. I think we need some work in that area. All right, I'm going to need to move quickly here. All right, what does it mean for God to be my strength and my song and my salvation right there in verse 2? Yahweh is my strength and my song and my salvation, right? This, this aspect of relating to God in such a way that he, he seizes the affections of my heart. My strength, the word there means it's used as strength of a people, a nation, or the internal fortitude and strength of an individual, that internal motivation, that thing that gets you up and makes you press through difficulties, that makes you stand in the face of conflict, that makes you deal with broken relationships, but you've got this inner fortitude that doesn't let you take the weak way out. The Lord is my strength. Why are you dealing with that person that way? Why are you staying in that? Why don't you just quit that job and move on? Well, because the Lord is my strength. There's something coming on the inside of me that actually motivates me when everything on the outside is demotivating me. He's not just my strength. He is my song, right? I'm not sure what this verbiage is supposed to, to capture. But when I think about, you know, something being my song, right, that, that's, that's the thing that, that I've got some, some zip in my step. I've got some, I'm animated about that. I've got some ambition here. I take delight in that. That thing matters to me. Puts a little hope in the way I feel. He's my song. I've got a song. He's my song. And listen, I don't know what your song is, but but there, this is sad. This is a commentary that, that too often fits me. I've, I've, I've got God, I, but I want something else to be my song. I mean, I've got God. I know I've got God. You, you know you got God? Right? I've I got God. But there's some other things that I would just, those things need to work out. They need to go a certain way because then I seem happier. Then when you get around me, I'm a little more pleasant because those things are coming in line and they're working out and they feel good. Listen, it can be, it can be just stuff that's really not life-changing stuff. I mean, let's, let's face it, right now, this time of year, right, it's the beginning of football season. Right? So if you've been bored to death so far, your life has just gotten boring. Now, I know you got God, but you're bored. Let's face it. And, and in, in rolls the football season. Right? I mean, there's... There's the Saints, you know, no record yet. <laughs> I have to be careful because some of the team attends. And <laughs> hope springs eternal at this moment, right? I mean, we know we are Super Bowl bound. I'm already planning the party, right? 
And then, you know, throw in their little LSU game. You've got LSU playing, right? LSU's kind of schizophrenic. Can't tell whether they're going to tank this year or just dominate. But, you know, it, it, it's starting off. It's the new season. And, and, you know, and if, if that's not enough for you, there's fantasy football. Right? I mean, if you can't deal with the reality of football, there's fantasy football. And so, you know, you, you've had your draft already, probably, and you're just pumped because you did really good. So, you know, just zoom back a couple of weeks, and life was mundane, and you were kind of bored, a little bit depressed. But now football is starting. I've got a little spring in my step. I drafted well in fantasy football. I'm in a good mood. Right? This is what, the, to me, this is what your song is. So really, what is your song? What is it that when it starts to go your way, you seem a little more pleasant? Your outlook is a little better. Well, in this passage, Yahweh is my song. He's my song. He's what I get up about and get most affected by. Matthew Henry says, I will sing unto the Lord. Note, all our joy must terminate in God. And all our praises be offered up to him, the Father of lights and the Father of mercies. For he hath triumph. Note, all that love God triumph in his triumphs. Right? You, you may be feeling like things aren't going my way. But has God triumphed in any categories that are your triumph? And so therefore you've got cause to celebrate even when your personal category looks like it ain't going well. Because God's triumphs are yours. What is his honor should be our joy. Israel rejoiced in God, one, as their own God, and therefore their strength, song, and salvation. And two, happy, therefore, the people whose God is the Lord. They need no more to make them happy. Can I just say this, and I say this with as many fingers pointing at my sad soul as I can point at anybody's here. And, and, and this, this vexes my soul. I, I hate this in the moments in which I experience it personally. I hate how it feels. I hate what it says because it says something that for me is the opposite of what I ever want to say about God. You know, how is it? that I have found God, but I need something more to make me happy. How can that be said of me? How could the greatest need in all of my life to be restored to the living God have taken place, and I now am indwelt by his spirit, have a front row seat for that which is amazing, thrilling, an adventure, rewarding, mind-blowing, whatever it is that I'm going to the movie to see, whatever it is that I hope this relationship will be, whatever I'm hoping that money can purchase for me is right there to be taken in between me and God, and I have that, and I put it on a back shelf, and I open my eyes up, and I look around everywhere I can, and I say, well, maybe that'll make me happy. Well, maybe that'll make me happy. And, you know, and if you think you're not doing that, just ask your spouse. Or people got to spend time with you. Ask them to sort of draw a graph. Keith's happy. He's not happy. He's happy. He's really happy. He's not happy. And then, then plot on that graph what was happening when you got happy. Right, you remember the term, the joy of your salvation? 
Right? Remember when you discovered God and you realize, oh my, what my soul has longed for, my soul has found in him. And everything else became these little bitty crumbs. They weren't even mountains, weren't hills, they weren't even speed bumps. They were crumbs in life to be stepped over. You had, you had God, right? He is my song. That's what this verse communicates. And he is my salvation. Wow, my salvation. Now there's a lost word. How many of us feel like the feature element, because the feature element in the Bible is a salvation story. It's not how to have a better life. It's not how to improve things, where the moral boundaries are for life. All that stuff's in there. But the feature story of the Bible, if you're wanting to know, I picked this book up, what on earth is it about? It's a salvation story. The main thing that this book wants to put me in touch with as I try to figure out what is this human event, this human experience, what is it all about? It's about salvation. He has become my salvation. Right? And, you know, in, in your understanding of the human story, question, does the human story require an act of salvation? Now, I say this because I'm not going to assume, because I don't know everybody in the room. I'm not going to assume everybody has been informed biblically about their views. Because there's a lot of people interacting with the problems of humanity that never bring up the issue that humanity needs to be saved from something. What you hear, and be careful you don't get educated by the world that you live in. What the news media would, you know, and politicians would convince you is people just need to be educated. That's the great downfall. If we can just educate people, we can fix people. We put more money into the education system. You know, if things go bad, we'll blame it on the education system. If we just educate people, then we'll fix people. Okay, that's not the biblical message. People need to be saved in the Bible, not just educated. They need to be saved. Does that salvation have many options or only one? Yahweh is my salvation. What's yours? And is, is another way valid besides Yahweh? He is my salvation. Well, good for you, Keith. He's your salvation and, you know, this one over here is my salvation, or that way of life is my salvation, or being this religion is salvation, or leading a good life, or trying to be a better person. That's my salvation. Okay, is that viable? Does the Bible communicate that there's options? And you pick this book up. It's a book of salvation. There's about eight different ways. Choose whatever color you'd like. What color, what color salvation would you like? Well, blue's my favorite color. Oh, so you like the version where you work real hard and you act real good, and, and that makes you saved. Yeah, yeah. What's your yellow? Oh, so you like the tolerant one where God doesn't care anyway, so it doesn't matter what you do. Right? That's not in the Bible. Right? The Bible's got one way to be saved. It's a book about salvation, and it's got one way to be saved in it. Yahweh is my salvation. He saves me by coming and putting on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and shedding his blood just like that Passover lamb did. And he forgives my sins and restores me to God, and that's the only way of salvation. Now listen, does that sing for you? 
I mean, really, does it really sing for you? Or is it kind of like, yeah, Keith, I, I, I got that. I mean, I know that. Does it sing for you, though? Does it come into a song for you that you have actually been saved? Listen, we are being taught something here. And I say this to the most spiritual person in the room, whoever you think that is. I, I can tell you right now, you've got secondhand smoke going on in your life as well. And how much value do you and I place in the fact that the Bible speaks about us being saved from our sin, from the devil, and from judgment? That's, that's what salvation does for us. It enters into a world where sin has gained power over us and saves us from that power. It enters into a world where there's a real devil with real strange spiritual forces and abilities to do things that your natural mind and your natural abilities cannot overcome. And God saves us from that. And then at the end of time, every life stands before God and gives an account. And those who have not been found guiltless because of the work of Christ will be judged. And salvation saves us from that day of judgment. How much value does that have to you? I mean, is this grown-up stuff? You know, this is, this is for all the adults in the room. Um, listen, this, they had a problem in this category. If you just keep reading a little further, here's, here's what God's doing. I'm reaching into Egypt to take my people out, to deliver them from the power of the devil and the control of Egypt in order to bring them to myself. That's what God is doing here. Was that a priority for these guys? It doesn't seem to be. If you keep reading here, when they start crying out, crying out, right, singing, crying out, when they start crying out in just a few verses here, when we get into chapter 16, they're going to cry out for the meat pots of Egypt. They're going to get a moment with God who's doing this incredible, wonderful work, and you know what they've been programmed to value? Meat pots and bread from Egypt. That's what's valuable to us. So therefore, when we start singing, it's about meat pots and bread in Egypt. And God, if you don't have that on the menu anytime soon, I don't know what you got going on here with us showing up at Sinai, meeting you face to face, but we'd just as soon go back to Egypt. Are you kidding me? Listen, not just are you kidding me because all of us in the room get that. Back in Egypt is 430 years of slavery. You want to go back to that so you can have a snack? But that's not the worst of the crime here. It's not just a crime of stupidity. It's a crime that sees no value in meeting God. So God, you've brought us out into the wilderness. We've hit some hiccups. It's a little bit challenging, so not as easy as we thought. But the prize is to come to your mountain and to meet you we will easily give up our meat pots and our bread for that. But they would not. Are you surprised by that? Listen, this, this is the American dream on steroids. These are people who have been so discipled by a value system that they have begun to believe what I need in my life and what I will sing about is the day I get to eat meat from the meat pots. I'll sing about that. That's valuable. And that's in us. 
Some of us, God has become our salvation, and salvation means something off the charts, amazing, mind-blowing. But I don't think God's a good God because I don't have enough meat in my meat pot. I don't have enough bread. So you and I have learned. I have learned this. We have learned to view God through the lens of whether or not God is at work in the category of convenient. This is too inconvenient. I can't believe God would delay this on me. Do you know how long I've been waiting for? And we're almost like God is on trial right now because we're having to wait a little while for something to take place. Because we, we've been indoctrinated by American convenience. Everything should be happening. We shouldn't have these kinds of conflicts. Right? You, you got people conflicts in your life? You don't have to raise your hands because they're probably with the people that are near you. <laughs> and maybe you haven't shared that with them yet. <laughs> right? You know, for us, a conflict-free, basically, hey, can you leave me alone so that I can do the stuff I want to do? Can you not messing with my world? Can you not cost me stuff financially? Because i got things I want to do. And then we take that to God and we pray. And if God doesn't show up in those categories and make all that stuff go away, we're, God's on trial now. And we're all disappointed. We don't know if we like this God. I don't even know if God is good. B because truly, Yahweh is not my salvation. A conflict-free life. People being nice, that's my salvation. Having enough money to buy the next thing, being able to get into that house faster and acquire that thing or get a raise, that's my salvation. That will save me from my misery. Oh, I already got God, Keith. I need these things to fix me. I need these things to make me happy. Wow. That's not what this song's about. This singing is about God. It's about having God as a treasure above every other treasure in our lives. I thought I could do this in two weeks, but it looked like that. Eric, you can go ahead and come back up. Listen, some, something happens at the beginning of this song. We'll get next week a little bit more into the fact that this, this song is a, a celebration about who God is against the backdrop of what their life was like. Their life was like a war. There's a lot of war language in here, right? There's enemies and there's battles and there's people being destroyed and there's corpses in this. God is called a man of war in this passage, right? Next week we'll, we'll, we'll visit that a little bit. It may not be until your, li your life feels like a war that you got a value for that statement, Sometimes we want this God to be nothing but peace and calm and slow moving and everything's sweet. This God's a God of war. And, and when you're in your own war, you're going to be thankful that he's a, he's a God of war. But this, this initial exchange is, is a realization about something. It is, it is coming to see God in such a way that we sing. 
we respond to God. And, you know, live in this space with me just for a second. You know, you walked in here this morning. Something was your strength, something was your song, and something was your salvation, right? Something's getting you through the day. You're wrestling, facing issues, whatever it is. You're in a season, and you're just you're getting through the day. I mean, I don't know what that is for you, but think about it for a moment. What's getting you through the day? Is it just that, hey, this will be over with soon enough? What gets you up in the morning with a sense of inner fortitude? I'm not just going to survive today. I'm going to live today. Well, this passage says something about our lives. Yahweh is my strength. He is my inner fortitude. He is my motivation. He, he is what is in me to give me the impulse in the face of lots of demotivating factors to take the next step. Yahweh is my song. He's where my hope is. He's what brings delight I'm not waiting for the next piece of news. I'm not contingent. My happiness isn't contingent upon something else showing up. He is my song. I have a song now because I'm aware that there's a treasure that belongs to me now. There's an advantage in life that belongs to me now, right now. It's at work. I've had to tell myself that recently. God is at work. Keith, do you know that? I have to tell my own soul. Keith, is God at work? And I have to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then quit acting like he's not. Right? There's a song there. Like, God is at work. That's a song. God, I know you're work. I'm not quite sure how the melody goes, but God is at work. And I, I need to be able to sing that. And God is my salvation. Listen, I, I am so out of step in saying this to you because... You're being taught to be saved from things that are worth about two nickels. And the things that you could never afford to buy have been given to you by grace and saved you. There's nothing, nothing you could have ever done to save yourself from the power of sin. Nothing. There's nothing you could ever do. You got no weapon in this natural world that can overcome the devil. And there's nothing you could ever do that would spare you of the judgment of having fallen short of the glory of God one day. But Yahweh has become your salvation. And all of those categories now, they're living and satisfied and they're in good shape in your life. What a gift! What a song! to be sung in our lives. And if we value something else more than we value that, oh, we have become so polluted by the wrong things, lesser things. I don't want to say wrong things, lesser things. Let's stand up together. we want to be a people who sing. So we're going to sing. <laughs> but Lord, we want to sing because we have seen something. Lord, we have seen 
the blood of the Lamb, and we have seen the power of God at work in our lives. On the pages of Scripture, it's a revelation of God throughout time, Lord. We have seen those things, Lord, so we believe them, Lord, and and perhaps we're here as people who don't really believe them. Lord, fix that this morning in us. Lord, stir up faith in our hearts to once again believe if we have previously believed these things. God, bring us to a place where this morning, I really do believe this. I really do believe you, God. It's gotten piled up by other things. The noise, the threats, the war around me have buried that. But Lord, I'm digging it out of that pile right now. God, I do believe. I do believe that, Lord. I do believe you. You, Lord, are my strength. And God, you are my song. And Lord, you are my salvation. This gift beyond measure. God, you are that to me this morning. So, Lord, I take those thoughts up. I just don't hold them. But, God, I sing them to you. I respond to you this morning by singing. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you. All of my days, I want to praise the wonders of your mighty love. My comfort, my shelter, tower of refuge and strength, let every all that I am never cease to
Give us a song to sing this week. Lord, let us see you. God, thank you for letting us see you in your word this morning. Lord, now help us this week to respond. Lord, we, we serve a God who is strong, who is mighty in battle, who is true to his word, who is steadfast. Help us to live in light of you this week, we pray. In your name, amen.